Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. From our financial life, to our relationships, to our kids and our health, we're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about women, working, money, and family. And in every episode, we consider the research and share our takes on what we're learning every day about breadwinning. I'm Jennifer Owens. I write about working, wellness, and women, and founded the Working Mother Research Institute. And on most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Raquel Ellison. But on this episode of The Breadwinners, I'm joined by Dr. Vanessa Weaver, a leading expert on diversity, inclusion, and engagement. For 30 years, her firm, Alignment Strategies, has been working with major employers around the globe to bring change to the workplace and diversity to their cultures of success. She does this through training, technology, content, and media, but she's also an author, a television and radio host, and a true voice of impact in the DNI space. All of which is to say, welcome, Dr. Weaver. Well, welcome, Jennifer. And you know, when you were reading my introduction, I thought of my mother. I just lost her in May. And oh. I know that she would be smiling to say, well, you know, maybe she got me right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think she is. She, now, don't you come from an entrepreneurial family? Oh, I'm already I, like into that. Yes, I, I come from an entrepreneurial family on both sides. In fact, my father's Emmanuel Weaver, his uncle, who became his surrogate father because my dad lost his father when he was like 10 or 12 years of age. But uh, they started the first black cab company in wow. St. Louis, Missouri, because at wow. that time, African-Americans or Blacks couldn't ride yellow cabs. And so they said, well, we're going to form our own company. And so we grew up in the cab business. And even wow. after Uncle Walter and my dad, who was a partner with him, sold the cab company, my dad still maintained a fleet of about four or five cabs. You just know, could and, not and run it. He, I mean, <laughs> it was in his blood. I, I mean, he just would not give it up. And yeah. uh, But we grew up understanding a couple of things. Number one, the the importance of entrepreneurship and how it was an avenue to deal with racial disparities mm-hmm. that we were experiencing in St. Louis, but also the responsibility of, of maintaining a business and being having a role in it, even when you were a young kid. So yeah. those are lessons that have remained with me and I'm grateful for them. Well, so you yourself are an entrepreneur. You've yes. had your firm for decades. Yes. So how is it being an entrepreneur right now? How's the pandemic treating you? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, being an entrepreneur is in my blood. I started my career at Procter & Gamble and I absolutely love and respect Procter & Gamble tremendously. I mean, in fact, they still are one of my main clients. But I knew even then that I would eventually start my own business because that's just how I'm wired. So I love being an entrepreneur and the pandemic has bode very well for me and our business. And that's particularly because of the unfortunate situation with George Floyd, you know, his murder and, and just all of the racial reckoning that our society has been undergoing this summer. And that has raised a level of sensitivity and awareness in a way that I haven't really seen in decades in corporate America. And so since we play in that space, I mean, that is our sweet spot, diversity and inclusion, as you indicated. We've had just an outpouring of, of our current clients and even previous clients to help them really figure out how they reconcile issues of race in their workplaces. That is a wonderful segue because you are a pro. So I'd love to hear, like, so what are they? Because you've got the companies, I'm sure, that had already been having these conversations and thinking about these conversations, but maybe a little slower than they should have been. And then you have the companies that never 
had the conversations yes. at all. It, all kind of a spectrum of where they are in their journey. So what are the type of topics that you're working with your clients on? Well, Jennifer, what's been really fascinating is that this is the first time, and I've been doing work in diversity and inclusion and engagement for over 30 years, but this is the first time that I've seen companies either that have been doing this for decades or those that are really new to this use the term systemic racism, racial disparities so comfortably. Before in our initiatives, you had to figure out to call it anything but race and racism and whatever. And this year, there's just been so much more of a directness around calling out issues around racial disparity if they're happening in society and in the workplaces. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just been absolutely amazing. And so no matter where they are on those their own mature, what we call our diversity maturity journey, yeah. they are all using this term, those terms pretty comfortably. And that has wow. really, for for several of the clients that we've been engaged in doing multifaceted kinds of diversity initiatives, not just doing training, but looking at how do we increase the representation of women or or people of color in senior management positions or reduce attrition, or how do we leverage diversity to really drive more business profitability and more business results or help teams be more effective because they're using the diversity of every team member. It doesn't matter where we land in terms yep. of that. There's been this exploration of race, and I think it's been extremely healthy. Do you think some of that is, I mean, I guess this is kind of a silly question, but I feel like we're hearing a lot more from the employees themselves. And true, every you know, that's always when the ERGs and the like, you know, people have come together. But going public, you know, I, I'd be a little scared if I was a major company right now because people feel like I can go public and say I have an issue with something that's happening with my employer. So you asked in the question, I'm sorry, Jennifer. Yeah, is, I did say a question. It, <laughs> are they feeling pressure from their employees in a new way? I guess that's my question. Well, clearly the Glassdoor just did a recent study. And in that study, they found that particularly their millennial employees expect their employers to take a stand on issues of social injustice yeah, and, and racial equity. So there is an increased expectation that companies deal with it. And then the other reality with social media is that before, like when I started my career prior to Gamble over 30 years ago, you know, when you when you stepped inside the company, you let the rest of the world outside yeah. the company. So yes. you know, when you were inside a PNG, that was your world. And when you were outside, then that was another world you dealt with. Mm-hmm. And now those lines are blurred. People bring their day to day lives into the workplace and they yeah. expect that those companies and their colleagues and peers deal with them that there's some interaction. And so I do think there's an increased expectation. But I also think from the employees, but I think also I'm finding that employers are also the CEOs and the executive VPs and the presidents of these companies also have a recognition that there's something that we can improve and enhance upon in our society and therefore in our workplaces. And so I've seen strong pushes coming from these organizations and they haven't been timid in making their statements. If you look at some of the websites of some of the major corporations, many of them have public statements out in terms of their support for Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. or their support for racial equity in and outside of their workplaces. And so it's been a phenomenal response to it. And so how about um, what's happening with us all working from home? Because I, I heard some some hand-wringing that the fact that we went from 5% of the workforce working from home full-time to 42%, yeah. that this and was I having an impact. I think the number is greater than that. I think you it's think? greater than 42%. Yeah, I really do. Well, so 
there was a lot of worry about the impact on our work on diversity and inclusion at work. And so has that been an issue? I have no idea. Well, it's yes, it has been an absolute issue. And for some, it's been an opportunity. Mm. Interestingly, when the first work from home, there was this big assumption that, oh, this is going to benefit women because they could be at home with their children and da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> Well, yeah. the data is not supporting that at all. And even when they said it was going to be a big benefit, I said to myself, well, who were they talking to? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because right. this has to be much more stressful for a woman or for a parent, period, but particularly for women. And the data is really, really, really scary, Jennifer, because in August and September alone, 865,000 women dropped out of the workforce. 865,000 almost a million. And they anticipate that that number is going to double by the end of the year because the demands that women are having to face to do homeschooling or what they call virtual schooling of their children. Yes, I'm um, aware. (laughs) You know, know, daycare facilities aren't really open and operating. They're closing at unbelievably quick rates, you know, because of the COVID-19. So women who had young children find themselves now having to take care of their young kids you know, you can't put them on a schedule. Like maybe you could put a teenager on a schedule. Right. And so it's it's a tremendous demand. And they find that women are four times more likely to drop out of the workforce than their husbands and or men. And then if you if you take that reality for women of color, many of them who are who are sing, single heads of households, it is cataclysmic the impact that it's having. Well, how is the racial divide for being able to work from home? Because that was actually, I saw this report from the Economic Policy Institute that said less than one in five Black workers and roughly one in six Hispanic workers are able to work from home in the first place. I yes. was shocked, I guess. But that's the flip side of not having the diversity in the corporate work world, I guess. Is that what, what well, that is? Yeah, what it, well, what it says is, and, and I've heard those stats too, and, and yeah. you're on with that, Jennifer. And what it says is that still there remains a big racial divide in regards to the kinds of jobs and income that Black and Brown individuals earn in these workplaces. And typically, as your data suggests, and this is confirmed, I don't care what study you look at, Bureau of Labor Statistics, Labor Department, the studies show that the largest percentage of Black and Brown people tend to be in those lower level jobs that Mm -hmm. have less earning potential. And interestingly, as a result of COVID, a lot of those jobs were labeled essential, essential workers. And so when you think about like when COVID started and they talked about essential workers, we thought about nurses Mm -hmm. and we know, oh my God, how essential they have been. But people didn't think about the janitors, the people that have to clean up the rooms or the technicians or the people who have to bring people their food or the people that have to draw blood, you know? So there's a lot of people in just the health industry alone that are considered essential and they tend to have those certain levels of those jobs. They have a proliferation, black and brown people. And so you have situations where black and brown people are required to go to work. I mean, if you think of the issue with Tyson's food, and if you remember, that was a big debate. Mm-hmm. Are they really essential because they're there, you know, plucking chickens and preparing meats so that we could buy? And the government identified or labeled them as essential, which means once you label essential, if you don't go to work, then you can't draw unemployment. Oh. So it's, it's not just, oh, I'm labeled essential and I have to go to work. No, if you don't go to work, if you don't go to work, it's not like you're going to get unemployment. 
And so many of these black and brown individuals were forced, you know, because of they were labeled essential to have to work. And it has created, in terms of the diversity and inclusion perspective, it has created another category. And that, that is people who are client facing, they have to go and deal with the clients and therefore expose themselves more frequently to the potential risk of COVID versus mm-hmm. those who have, who stay at home. And the folks who are out there in the trenches, and this could be utility workers that have yeah. to make sure that your electricity is working. I mean, think of the hurricanes we just had in Louisiana and, and Mississippi and Texas, where the utility workers had to go out with all of the weather-related challenges. Yeah. But they had to also go out there and expose themselves to people because they were trying to help them get their utilities on. So right. it's creating a real divide. And the folks that are what we call customer-facing or client-facing feel like their compensation and the benefits have not quickly matched the risks oh, that they perceive yeah. or know that they're experiencing. And so right. some of, so there is some, I won't call it ill feeling, but there's some sensitivity around that. But I must also say, Jennifer, and tell me if I'm just talking too much and not letting oh, take no, a break. I'm fascinated. Anyway. But Never. <laughs> I must also say that for these black and brown individuals, a lot of them feel fortunate that this is even an issue because we know that not only did we lose, are we losing 860, did we lose 865,000 women? But we've lost that many and more uh, black and brown people from those jobs that have closed. Right. We know that 42% yeah. of businesses that close are not going to reopen. And right. many of those businesses hired black and brown people to do a lot of the work to support those businesses. Right. And so those people don't even have the luxury of saying, oh, I'm in a new cash system, you know, client facing, therefore I have to go to work or work from home. They don't have jobs. Right. right. And, and black and brown businesses, I mean, if we're talking about 42% of businesses in the U.S. are not going to reopen, yes. we're over 60% of black and brown businesses that are going to reopen. And second to the government, black and brown businesses are the largest employer of black and brown people. So we are in a cataclysmic situation here. Because not only are black and brown people dying at rates higher from mm-hmm. COVID, and many of them are underinsured or not insured at all, but they also are the ones that are losing their jobs at rates that are just unbelievable. Right. Which I would think, to think about the work that you do with major employers, a lot of this communication has to take all that in and reflect that. Because that's where the sour note comes or the, you know, you're not speaking to your employees in a way that they want to hear because they're experiencing all of this. And so just to say, oh, these are challenging times we feel for you moving on isn't enough. Well, I absolutely agree with you. And those very progressive companies are taking steps beyond saying it's it's pretty tough. It's challenging (laughs) times. I mean, unfortunately, there's a group of businesses like this 42% that are not going to open up are devastated because many of them, you know, have two to three to five employees. And they're pretty small companies that have found a niche and tried to meet it. And so even if they wanted to, they just can't deal with the financial outcome. But larger corporations are doing a lot of creative kind of work to address, when I say work, I mean projects, to address some of these issues. And the employee resource groups and these diversity councils 
have become elevated in the role that they can play because many of them become the voice of their their members around what's impacting them and what are the ways that they need the companies to be more sensitive and more responsive to them. And so they are taking on that advocacy role and many companies are listening to them and partnering with them to ways in ways that could really support some of the crises or challenges. And then other companies like Procter and Gamble, which you know that was my my former company and and one that I still respect tremendously, they've kicked off started an initiative called Take on Race. Hmm. And what they are talking about is looking at the role that corporate America should play in defining and declaring disruption against racial inequities. And so what's happening is that they pulled together a number of companies and they said, look, versus all of us out here doing one thing, Mm. why don't we come together as a coalition of companies, pull our resources together, and let's identify one of five of these racial disruptors we're going to really challenge. And those five disruptors have been education, employment, wealth creation, social justice, and health. And so they said, let's, let's pull our resources together and be smart and look at how we can combine all of those and be much more targeted and focused on these racial disruptors that we're going to really disrupt. And so, for example, uh, one of their challenges, which really helps multicultural women and women, is really to make sure that, that Black and brown children have the computers and the hardware that they need to be able to do this virtual schooling. Yeah. If you think about the data shows that almost 40% of black and brown kids don't have access to computer technology or the hardware to do these virtual classrooms. Mm-hmm. And so what we're, we're talking about is really already doubling the, the adverse impact on these kids right. because they're going to lose a year, if not two years of education. So, so this Take on Race initiative has already raised over a million dollars to supply computers directly to black and brown kids so that they not only have the computers, but they have the hookup in terms of Wi-Fi or whatever to be able to to do their work. That's phenomenal. They're also working with supplier diversity companies, uh, companies that have supplier diversity programs. And supplier diversity programs are programs that are targeted to uh, black, brown, Asian women-owned companies to ensure that they have an opportunity to to sell their goods and services to companies. And so they're also now pulling together this network of companies to see what they can do to ensure that black and brown companies that are in their supply chain are not faltering and that they are are succeeding. So we have some companies such such as Eli Lilly that's looking to double their spend with black and brown companies that are in their supply chain to ensure that they keep their doors open, and that they can continue being employers of black and brown and other people. And that, in fact, we have a thriving economy in our black and brown community. So, you know, so Take on Race is just one initiative. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is also involved with an initiative with American Express, where they're actually uh, providing grants to black and brown businesses just to pay their rent or to pay yeah. their utilities, just to, get just them to keep their doors yeah. open. Right. So there are things that are going on, but of course, the magnitude is nowhere near what we need it to, right. to be to stop this cataclysmic situation we're in. Can you imagine? Like when you thought you had probably seen it all at some point, there's always something new. <laughs> yes, yes. It's frightening when you think 
you know, not only is it just a personal impact, we know we're now with a 218,000 and growing Americans that have died as a result of COVID. And they're going to expect that number to double in the next three or four months. But the economic toll is unbelievable. Just last week, we had over 900,000 people that applied for unemployment benefits. These are new applicants. Right. And so the impact on families is just unfathomable, really. Well, do you see, to be somewhat on an up note, are there things, are there any silver linings? I mean, it is pretty dark, but I feel like part of it with the discussion being more open is something that I kind of can't believe it. I, I can't believe that, like major companies talking about systemic racism. Like, yes. it, like mm-hmm. I, I would have never thought we could get there. <laughs> yeah, there is a silver lining. And I mean, I just talked about Procter & Gamble and yep. this coalition of 25 companies that have pulled together to do take on race. But you're seeing smaller initiatives that are, pro- uh, that are popping up in various communities that are saying, look, we're going to make a difference and we're going to step up and make a difference. And so I see a lot of that. And so it's just really now trying to figure out how do we coalesce all of these efforts together or at least make them connect the dots so that we can really maximize the impact. But in regards to like working from home, remote working and stuff, I see companies really putting a lot of resources to tackling this question because we already know in several of my clients they're already saying about 30% of their workforce will not return back to the offices. That's amazing. So that that is a big number. Yeah. And so if you think one out of the three employees are going to continue working from home, that's changing the whole culture of an organization. And so we have many organizations that are trying to figure out, well, what is this new culture that we're operating in? How do we fit our traditional values or the way that we function around business How do we build that all in so that our businesses can continue to grow and thrive? How do we do career development? If we got a third of the people that are home, then how do we make sure that they get the mentorship, the kind of sponsorship they need to continue advancing their careers? And we know that Black and Brown and Asian people often suffer from not having the kind of high-level sponsorship. So what happens when they're, they're working from home? Right, right. And, and, and you know, sometimes out of, what does it say, out of sight is out of mind. Mm-hmm. And so how are companies beginning to look at all of this? And then, of course, it's the financial repercussions of that. It clearly can be a significant cost savings to companies if you can reduce a third of the space requirements you have. And, you know, and now we're at home, we're using our own computers, many of us, our own phones. So, I mean, so there are a lot of real savings that companies will have. But think about the impact, though, in terms of society. Think about the commercial real estate. What's going to happen to that? Right, right. What's going to happen to that industry or the industries that have come up to support people? who are working in offices. And so people are stepping back and looking at different, new, innovative ways to work. And I think that's also one of the silver linings is that one of the assumptions that we always made that work would always be this particular way (laughs) is being challenged. I mean, even in my small business relative to a bigger business, I couldn't even imagine that my consulting crew didn't come into the office every day. Right. I mean, I just just couldn't even figure out how that was going to happen. Yeah. And now all of my folks are working remote and it's we haven't missed a step. So it it really challenges some of the assumptions that you make, but it also has challenged me as the CEO of Alignment Strategies. 
How do I stay connected to each one of my people? Mm-hmm. How do I understand the kind of care and feeding they need to address in their situation? I have, you know, a, a female on my staff that is a single mom to three kids. And yep. and we're trying to figure that out. So the right. reality that I talked about in terms of the challenges that women are facing, a small business like myself, I'm facing that reality. Mm-hmm. You know, so it it uh it, it really is gonna change the lens by which we all are operate. But I think it provides us an opportunity to say what really matters for us and how do we create the kind of policies, practices and procedures that add value to our people, our employees, that enhance what we deliver to our customers and that add value to society. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us on The Breadwinners. Our guest today was Dr. Vanessa Weaver of Alignment Strategies, and you'll find links to some of the work that she does and some of the things we talked about in the episode description wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit us anytime at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com to ask a question, share your story, offer some feedback. How are you making it work? We'd love to know. And thank you, Jennifer. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review it. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's Voices. Amplified.